Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. After a fascinating week two in the National Football League, I've got two very interesting guests, and we're going to interpret a lot of what happened in week two. Brent Musburger. Can you believe Brent Musburger is 81 years old? It's incredible. He is now the radio play-by-play voice of the Las Vegas Raiders, coming off a huge victory in the first home game in the history of pro football in Las Vegas. The 34-24 win over the New Orleans Saints on Monday night. Brent Musburger will dissect that victory. And he'll also just talk about how incredible it is that there's a team in Las Vegas. So after that, we're going to talk to Mike Ryan, a 26-year-old veteran pro football NFL team athletic trainer. And I'm going to talk to Mike Ryan a little bit about the spate of injuries that have happened in the first two weeks of the season. All of these ACL injuries. Is there anything that would suggest that all of these injuries have something to do with the fact that there wasn't an offseason program, an organized one, that training camp was so light this year, and that there was no preseason games? We'll get into that with Mike Ryan. But first, you know, one of the things that I really want to talk about that just really fascinates me so far about this young NFL season is the NFC West. So it's easy. We always get criticized. I live in New York. And I always get criticized. Ah, you're an East Coast guy. East Coast bias. But... You know, it doesn't have anything to do with the way I cover football. I don't think anyway, but who knows? I've always lived in the East since I've covered the NFL. So who knows what creeps into my thinking? But I want you to just think for a moment about the National Football League so far through only two weeks. And I want you to think, have you ever seen a division that's quite as good as the 2020 NFC West. We'll start at the top, the Arizona Cardinals, the one of the surprise teams of the NFL. They go to San Francisco and win in week one. And that was a little bit of a surprise, but I think everybody really liked the Cardinals coming into this year. They didn't know how much to like them, but that was an impressive win, winning at San Francisco. Then they just mopped the floor with Washington in week two. 
So they sit there 2-0. and And let's talk about the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams stunned the Cowboys in week one, the first game in the history of SoFi Stadium. So that's 1-0. and And then they go 3,000 miles across the United States, and they dominate the Philadelphia Eagles. They're 2-0. and Now let's talk about the Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks in week one go 2,900 miles to Atlanta. And again, they dominate the Atlanta Falcons. Play very, very well. Then in week two, they're home. Sunday night, New England Patriots. Fantastic defensive play to end this game. You know, with the Seahawks stopping Cam Newton at the end. But... Just look at that Seattle offense early on. Russell Wilson, nine touchdowns, one interception. A quarterback rating through two games of 140. He's been incredible. So one, two, three. Now, how many people looking at this division before the season said, I got Arizona, I got the Rams, and I got Seattle. They're all undefeated. The only mark, the only pockmark on our division is the San Francisco 49ers. The 49ers lose week one to Arizona. And then week two, they go to the Jets and they just totally embarrass the Jets. Now, that's not some great accomplishment. The Jets are the worst team in football. But the one thing about that game that I thought was really, really interesting is as the great players on the 49ers are dropping and they're falling out of the game, you know, obviously Bosa goes, Garoppolo goes down with an ankle, and Bosa now gone for the year with an ACL. Uh, and and Mostert, he started the game with an 80-yard touchdown run, and then he's gone soon. So the 49ers have significant injury problems, but still – Is anybody counting them out? I mean, is it possible, just possible, that in the first year that the NFL has seven playoff teams in each division, or in each conference, rather, is it possible that all three wildcard teams could come from one division? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. But as of today... As we sit here right now, you could make an argument that after the four division winners in the NFC, the next three best teams in the NFC are all in the NFC West. A fascinating development in the first two weeks of the 101st season of the National Football League. So we're going to get you now to Brent Musburger. He had a fantastic time. in Allegiant Stadium in the first game in the history of the Las Vegas Raiders. We're going to hear from him. So let's go to Brent Musburger. So happy to be joined on the podcast this week by Brent Musburger, the man, the myth, the legend. You were looking live at Brent Musburger right now in his kitchen. And uh, so we're very, very happy to have him on the day after the first game in the history of the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, Brent, you were Mike's side for that affair at Allegiant Stadium on Monday night. 
just give me an overarching view of what the scene was like Monday night for the first game in Vegas. Uh, surreal, I guess, would be the word I would use. Uh, Peter, we had called a game, Lincoln Kennedy and I had called a game on radio the week before, but it was a road game. So we were looking at the game on the monitor provided by CBS. They were broadcasting the game back in Charlotte. But last night, of course, we had the game in front of us. We had the players down on the field in this beautiful new $2 billion arena that was built, of course, to house primarily the Raiders. Now the Las Vegas Raiders. I found it uh, difficult to tell you the truth. I really miss the fans uh, looking down on the field. During the game, the ESPN audio was picking up the sideline chatter of the Raiders. You could hear John Gruden uh, helping the officials out on, <laughs> on every pass down the field. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Either they were on a delay, but there wasn't profanity on the sidelines. But it was a it was a very active sideline during the game. Uh, the stadium is beautiful, and it has a tremendous, tremendous view of the strip behind it. And of course, the Al Davis Memorial torches there, uh, lit by his lovely wife Carol prior to the game. Mark Davis, the son, is not coming to games because the fans are not allowed. So he said it didn't seem right to him or appropriate to come to the game. So he stayed away and had a party nearby with some friends over there watching the game. Uh, the facility, fans around the country, Peter, are going to come. They're going to come in droves to see their team uh, play in Allegiant Stadium. There was, there was no doubt about that to me. And never, ever in uh, my imagination did I think the National Football League would someday come to Las Vegas. Uh, it really stamps the city as a big-time city, uh, being one of the two, one of the 32 franchises in the NFL. The National Hockey League has done very well with the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, but, Peter, you and I know that the NFL attracts a much more diverse, larger audience. and and it was great. There were parties all over Las Vegas. My son, Scott, who's my spotter, and I went down early to the stadium. There were tailgaters who were parked outside around the stadium, uh, taking pictures with a legion in the background. Uh, it was very, very cool from that regard. But I really missed the fans on the inside. I just, it did not, it seemed more like a scrimmage to me. Right. And I had, I had some difficulty getting myself involved. We had a lot of media people uh, upstairs at the 400 level where the press boxes are. I was a little bit surprised. We had a large crowd. I guess reporters from all over the country wanted to come in. But it is a great facility. So, Brent, uh, Ian Eagle told me the same thing last week after his first game. He said there's just – he said it's very, very hard to kind of uh, – to keep your spirits up or, or whatever, because usually oftentimes you're responding to the noise of the crowd and yeah. there's no noise to respond to now. So yeah, exactly. you've been doing games forever. How different was that doing it last night? Well, you know, it was something I'd never experienced before. And so 
you know, Lincoln Kennedy was there. We added Coach Tom Flores, who, who, by the way, Peter, you've been a Hall of Fame voter for a long time. What in the world are you people thinking of? Okay. Flores should have been in the Hall of Fame years ago. Uh, listen, he's the first, only person that I know of who has won four Super Bowl rings as a player, an assistant coach, and as a head coach, he won two uh, Super Bowl rings. He's the first minority coach, he's Hispanic, in the history of the National Football League. He's done everything in this league. I, it is mind-boggling to me. I just want to throw that in because Tom was in the booth with me last night, and Lincoln, it, it was great having him because I'm getting back to your point. I used conversation with the two of them to, to sort of help me through the game because I missed that energy that that Ian Eagle told you about, because he's exactly right. We did not have, we did not have the energy. We had entertainment on the sideline with the chatter from the Raiders, obviously, and ESPN was uh, was pumping in sound into their feed, but that didn't help us because we weren't picking that up. Uh, so, so we had to make do with what we had, and uh, the game, of course, got very interesting from a Raiders standpoint. As you know, after a miserable first quarter, they really dominated. And any team in the NFL that can score on the last possession of the first half, field goal, then take that kickoff to start the second half, as the Raiders did, and march down the field for a touchdown, that puts you in a commanding position. They kept the Saints off the field in that third quarter. They dominated. That was the difference in the ballgame. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all hand-picked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Gold for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. Dear listener, please close your eyes for this movie theater meditation brought to you by Fandango. Breathe in. Smell the fresh popcorn. Now exhale. <sighs> Open your eyes and proceed to the best seats in the house you reserved on Fandango. Recline. Now, download the free Fandango app for movie times, tickets, and seats at your favorite theaters. Fandango, it's your ticket to the movies. I thought it was really interesting, you know, watching the game, that in the first, say, 20 minutes of the game, I thought the Saints were going to blow them out. So did I. And the Raiders really hung in there. A absolutely. And and they made Drew Brees pay, you know, and the Michael Thomas absence was a huge factor in this game because that's the guy who Brees can throw up a ball 20 yards downfield. And Thomas is going to win as, as, uh, as Sean Payton told me last year once. He goes, Michael Thomas wins the 50-50 balls 75% of the time. 
And he, they just didn't have that. And I think that sort of exaggerated maybe the problems that Breeze is having throwing the ball downfield right now. But you just got to hand it to the Raiders. They were so tough last night. The touchdown pass to the fullback was ingenious. Using the tight end, an athletic, tough, Gronk-like tight end like Waller. Uh, and obviously Josh Jacobs is a top 10 running back, might be top five. Um, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, Brent. I really, I, I don't know how far they'll go, but that was really an impressive game for them last night. Uh, Peter, when you look at the schedule, they probably had the toughest stretch of games to open the season, okay? Right. Uh, they're 0-5 until this year in that opening game back on the East Coast, that 10 o'clock start. And of course, they... They dominated Carolina, got the win. But then after the Panthers, and that's a game in which the Raiders were favored, then, of course, it was the Saints last night, followed up on a short week. You've got to go play the New England Patriots in Foxborough. You come back home the next week, play the Buffalo Bills. Then, oh, by the way, you get on an airplane the next week, you go play Kansas City, okay? I have told one and all of my friends that if the Raiders can win two of those first five games, okay, they will be in contention for a playoff spot come December. Mark it down. Well, we've already got them, and now I'm getting greedy. Can we win <laughs> one of the next three? Can we can we finish this stretch three and two before the bye week? Uh, then I would make them one of the, the favorites to get the wild card. Listen, the, the difference in the quarterbacks last night was stark, okay? Yeah. Uh, Derek Carr... And John Gruden are very definitely now on the same page, okay? Uh, John, a little bit different as a play caller. This is the third year that Derek has been in that system. He did a wonderful job of managing. John was more aggressive last night than he has been. Went for it on a couple of fourth downs on a third and five. He went to rugs and got the pass interference call. I will tell you from my perspective, Drew Brees is like Tom Brady. You're going to have some good weeks from time to time but you're not going to beat father time simply because no one ever has. Uh, I'm twice as old as Drew, and I know in many regards I haven't beaten father time. Now, I'm not saying that he's finished. He's going to have great days just like Tom Brady did or a better day last Sunday that he did on the opening week. But there is deterioration. I covered Drew Brees at Purdue. Uh, I followed his career closely. Even with Michael Thomas, if you go back and look at the last three games that Thomas has played, Drew Brees and Thomas were not lighting up. They were not lighting up arenas, okay? There's deterioration, and they're going to have to address it at New Orleans going forward, in my opinion. Yeah. How are you going to handle the road this year? Are you, are you going to Foxborough, or will you do the game from Vegas? A 16-game schedule in Allegiant Stadium, my man. Wow. I wow. get in my car with my spotter, Scott. I put some cold ones in the back of the Suburban for after the game, <laughs> drive down there. We're in the arena in about 20 minutes. I'm up high that the networks, CBS, Fox, of course, you guys at NBC, you provide us with great feeds up there on the monitors. My man, I'm living the dream. I got a $2 billion stadium all to myself to watch <laughs> these Raiders. <laughs> so... Let's talk about Vegas for a second. Sure. I'm, I'm fascinated. It's it all. It's almost like last night snuck up on all of us. 
you know, okay, you knew the Raiders were coming to Vegas, but then around the country, everybody was talking about COVID. They're talking about social justice. They're, right. you, you know, there's all these other topics. And all of a sudden, last night, you look up and there's Allegiant Stadium and there's the Raiders finally playing in Vegas. Mm-hmm. What did it feel to you? after all the build-up time that and obviously you live there right uh it felt really neat peter uh it 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 was great uh, having the raiders play their first game in, in las vegas it just uh it was an exciting time to be here and of course uh you know the city embraced the golden knights completely when the national hockey league moved here uh, they got upset by the Dallas Stars, knocked out of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, but along come the Raiders, and suddenly they're 2-0. and I'll tell you what was interesting with the Golden Knights and, and the Raiders, because you can bet legally on sports here in the state of Nevada. An awful lot of people bought. They went to the counter at the various sports books around town. And whether it was a $20 or a $2,000 bet, didn't matter. They wanted that ticket. They took a picture of it on their cell phone. So they could frame it uh, from the first game. They, the spread during a week was basically five and a half. New Orleans was favored, meaning that it went by six. Of course, the Saints would have cashed the bet. By the time they kicked off last night, it had slipped to three and a half. That means that whole lot of cash came pouring in on the Raiders. But a lot of it was by folks in town. They don't bet on football regularly, but they wanted to have a wager on their home team in that first game. And the books around town, they were jammed with people uh, watching on the big screen televisions, uh, people enjoying the action in here. Uh, it was just great having, having, having them here. But I tell you something else, because of the pandemic, okay, and because of the seriousness of it, and the fact that Nevada has been hit hard, uh, one of the hard hit states out on the West Coast, Allegiant Stadium, and the Raiders are going to help this city recover. Uh, traffic is off. Uh, the hotel rooms have gone begging for customers. The casinos are two-thirds empty. But going forward, as they move toward a vaccine, and hopefully it's sooner rather than later, we shall see about that. Maybe it'll extend it the next year. Nobody knows anything as far as I can tell. But the comeback for this city will be helped dramatically by the Raiders and Allegiant Stadium. Garth Brooks had an August concert postponed. They have rescheduled it for February. And I know many, many people are still holding on to their tickets. And it will be a great venue for big-time entertainment shows to come to. So it's going to help the recovery of this city because this city is being hit economically very, very hard. Uh, gambling is, well, Basic, that's the only uh, source of revenue. This is not an energy city or anything like that. Uh, people come here with the conventions. They've all been canceled. Uh, so I think the Raiders and Allegiant Stadium are going to be a huge part of the recovery. Isn't it incredible that the National Football League put a franchise in Vegas? I mean, I just sometimes I just think to myself, how in the world did this happen? I agree with you, and I never thought it would happen. But what's fascinating about this is that Al Davis, he was very fascinated with this city, okay? 
he and uh, Jimmy the Greek were best of friends, and that's how I came to know Al. That we would go out to dinner. Uh, in fact, before the Greek went on the air on the NFL Today on Saturday night, he would always talk to Al. Uh, that's where he pick up some of his nuggets and some of his gems on on other teams, and and it was great. It was great having conversations and sitting at the dinner table with Al Davis. But he would always ask about the spreads and the betting and et cetera and et cetera. So lo and behold, when he goes back to Oakland, it's not Al himself. He passes away, but it's his son, Mark Davis, who is able to pull this off and get a franchise into Las Vegas. Now, I have to tell you, politically, and I haven't asked Mr. Cronkie, whom I know uh, and I respect, my guess is, Peter, politically, inside the framework of the ownership of the National Football League, that the Rams, because of the number of Raider fans who are in Southern California, that's where they won a couple of Super Bowls with Flores, because of that fan base, Mr. Cronkie was much more comfortable with the Chargers being his partner than the Raiders coming to Los Angeles. Let's say that the league had decided to make the Raiders a co-tenant in Los Angeles, and let's say they would move the Chargers into Las Vegas. I think history would be completely different. But Mark Davis has got to be ecstatic. He went from one of the owners with the lowest amount of annual revenue coming forward, and suddenly he's now up there with the elite because of the new stadium built by the bed tax largely, although the Raiders did have to borrow a lot of money from the Bank of America to complete the $2 billion statement here. They're going to run... They may run, oh, 50 million over budget, something like that, but nothing compared to what's happened in Southern California. Right, uh, right. That stadium's coming in around $5 billion right now, an enormous, enormous overrun of costs uh, down there in the Los Angeles area. But politically, it's going to work to the Raiders' benefit. There is no question about it. Uh, there's no personal income tax in this state. That's going to help the Raiders lure free agents to come into Las Vegas and play for the Raiders. There's a lot of advantages. Now, one of the disadvantages, the heat that you have to put up with uh, during that training camp period, but they built a beautiful new indoor facility down in Henderson, and that helped them get ready for this season. And it'll be fascinating watching all these stories going forward. You know, I look back when you were doing the NFL today and um, – you know, I, I remember Jimmy the Greek being on, and I used to remember the stories. Like, I wasn't in the business at the time. I was a kid. But I remember the stories I would hear about the NFL always being so nervous about Jimmy the Greek talking about gambling because it was like gambling was, uh, you know, was a pox on the NFL society, even though the NFL knew that everybody gambled. <laughs> and and it was just an absolutely classic thing. It's like the way people treat prostitution. You know, oh my yes, God, exactly. it's awful. It's awful. But you know, and then but anyway, so I, no, I you're right. I've you're always right, looked at it like it's just a matter of time. But the NFL's new embrace of gambling just leads me to believe that, you know. I mean, just imagine if 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 they had done this 10, 15 years ago and Vegas was now an established franchise. All I can say is the NFL would have made a lot more money over the last 10 years or so than it has, because I think you're right. I think it's an absolute gold mine waiting to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when it comes to gambling, 
And when we brought the Greek in, and I told you before that we had to have that meeting with the then commissioner, Pete Rosell, and the only thing he asked us was not to use the point spread numbers like right. three, seven, 10, 10 and a half, seven and a half. And so we figured it out with the checkboard that we could still make it work. And he did not object to if we said they're favored by a touchdown, it was left up to the public to decide if that meant six or seven. Uh, but going forward, but I would always see Commissioner Roselle and by the way, Wellington Mara at the racetrack. Okay. They would go to <laughs> Churchill Downs and they were out at the Belmont and all the big races. I would inevitably run into them. Okay. So I said, aha, aha. They do know what this is all about. Okay. And of course the Rooney family, uh, Art Rooney, what, what a wonderful person he was. I mean, yeah. I just, I love being around here, but of course, uh, you know, he, he actually bought the Steelers after cashing a nice bet on a horse race. And that's how he got the down payment for it going forward. I knew that the national football league knew deep down that everybody was gambling. I knew they knew that they, they were just afraid of the publicity and the fallout or the thinking that they might turn the public off, uh, by having it legal in this country. But now once, once they threw pass bout, they had nowhere to go. And, uh, and I, th they understand it now. They in fact, I, I see these teams they are, they're, they're Actually, uh, there are many casinos are now sponsors of some of these teams. On the radio last night, uh, my red zone for the Raiders and for the Saints was the MGM red zone. Okay? Yeah. So they're in partnership with, with these casinos going forward. And I think it's good for business. I'll tell you, maybe not in my lifetime, uh, but in yours, my man, uh, there will be betting kiosks inside stadiums at some time in the National Football League, like they have in the soccer stadiums over in the UK and down in Australia, the places that I have visited uh, during those games. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. I want to ask you one more thing before sure. I let you go. So Monday was the 50th anniversary of the <laughs> first Monday night football game. This was the 799th. But reason I bring that up is that I had a long conversation last week with Joe Namath about, oh about the first Monday night football game. Sure, sure. Jets at Browns, 85,000 people. And Joe said to me, he said, Peter, you know, what is so crazy to think about is that, you know, when we heard that there was going to be a Monday night game regularly now, they had played, uh, teams had played in the preseason, particularly on various nights and, and all that. But now it was going to be a regular part of the schedule every Monday night. He said, people work. People go to school. And there's the Carol Burnett show. There's Doris Day. There's Laugh-In. There's Mayberry RFD. There's, uh, you know, this is, I mean, does the NFL really know what it's doing, putting football on Monday night? And that first year, I looked up the ratings, Brent. The first year on the fall uh, Monday night schedule, Monday night football was the eighth of 11 rated shows on the networks in prime time. Mm -hmm. So, for you know, I, I think Namath probably was right. And I, I just want you to look back and tell me, what did you think at the time? Did you think it would work? 
did you was it any big deal to you at the time? I mean, I'm testing you here. You were what uh, 31 years old at the time. Right. But do you recall what you thought? Yeah, I thought it had it had a chance because the one thing about Monday night, and yes, Joe is right about school and work, but everybody's home. Everybody, you got a chance to carve out a niche audience for that product. Now the two the two gentlemen, in my opinion, who are the most responsible for it, before I get to Rune Arledge and ABC, Art Modell, who owned the Browns, but he'd made his money in the broadcasting business, and Pete Rozelle, they were attempting to build up the marketing of the National Football League. CBS turned them down. We had dominant primetime shows. Didn't want anything to do with it. NBC turned them down. The last place network at the time was ABC. Rune Arley's being very, very creative, convinced the bosses, let's try this. We've got nothing to lose, and maybe we can carve out an audience with it. I talked to, uh, I talked to Mr. Roselle, uh, who's no longer with us and uh, was a dear friend at the time, and he laughed and told me so many great anecdotes after that first game because all the owners – all the owners weighed in on the telephone with two things. Man, that was great having us in prime time. And get rid of that Howard Cosell. <laughs> I'll, I'll never, I will never forget the conversations that I had. And, and Pete, and he got on the phone. He got on the phone because this is what his owners wanted. And he talked to Rune Arledge. And Rune said, no way. Howard stays on the broadcast. And, and Pete said that was it, as far as I was concerned, because I could go back and tell my ownership, hey, listen, the network won't budge. I tried to get him off, but he said, in reality, I really didn't. Uh, he said, I, I thought he would help us, and 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 certainly he did. I, I don't know that Joe told you this. Maybe he did. Uh, they lost that night. They lost by 10 points. Yeah. He was trying to rally the Jets, and a linebacker by the name of Billy Andrews That's intercepted right. him on a diving catch, got up, ran for a pick six, and Billy Andrews, the highest moment of his football life, he is still he's still got that football that he intercepted. He gave it to somebody on the sideline to keep on, and uh, and so there it was. But uh, I can I tell you chance. one thing about? Sure. I'm going to tell you one thing about Joe. I talked to him last Friday for 40 minutes, three different times. He brought up how like he has no joy in the fact that he played in the first game. He only has misery that he threw the ball two yards behind Emerson Boozer yep. for an interception That's that it. lost the game. That, and I draw this conclusion from that. What a great teammate Joe Namath must have been because oh, he wanted to win him. so bad. Yeah, Peter, they, they loved Joe, the guys who were on that Jets team. And uh, it was um, Howard had an interview with Joe. You know, he was very close to the Jets. And the ownership of the Jets had told Howard, this is a better football team than the one that won the Super Bowl. And Howard asked Joe, he said, this is what the owner told me. What do you think? He said, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure, Howard. We'll let you know later. You know, and of course, they weren't as good as that team. But, but it, was a, it was a wonderful time. And, uh, yeah, 50 years ago last night, uh, Howard opened that on a – you know, it was old municipal stadium, Peter. I covered more baseball games in there than I had football yeah. games, although I'd seen great Jim Brown and, and things as a newspaper man. 
Uh, but that dirt infield was still down there, man. It brought me back memories of the White Sox and the Indians yeah. uh, playing some of those great series. But uh, Monday Night Football 50 years ago was a baseball infield. And, of course, that's important to the Raiders because they have finally managed to escape. Yeah, so they were the last ones. The last ones. <laughs> last ones. I, I'll never forget the last couple of years over there in Oakland. It would The first guys out of the visitor's locker room would always be the kickers. And they would come out, they would paw at that dirt, and the holder would get down on his knee and see how he could uh, catch the snap and hold it down there. It was it was fascinating because it, it worked to the Raiders' advantage several yeah. times. A lot of guys didn't like that dirt, and I don't blame them. Brent Musburger, thanks so much for sharing so many yeah, good stories. Good luck. Uh, and uh, I hope, I really hope this works. It's going to be, it's so much fun. And while I do... Uh, I do pine for the people in the East Bay because there that is one of the great event places and that stadium as much of a dump as it was I used to love going to football games at that place because it was alive it was alive and I would love walking through the parking lot too and everybody you know it was funny people were kind of afraid of the parking lot you know and I've I've walked through there I don't know, three, four, five times, probably five times. And I never once felt fear, even with these bizarre people in the weird getups. They just, they love their Raiders. Uh, You know, it's interesting you say that. I had the owner of a a big-time casino here in Las Vegas a couple years ago when it was first announced that they were coming tell me that that he was not happy because that, that rowdy fan base will be coming in. So I go through a couple of years with it over there, parking lot experiences like you. And I go back and I tell him, I said, listen, take this for what it's worth. But that's one of the nicer fan bases that I've ever been <laughs> yeah. I said, I'll, <laughs> I'll take you to some college places where it's yeah. absolutely dangerous. I'm yeah. there with some of those rowdies. But I said, this fan base, uh, they love their team. And I said, one other thing I've noticed about the Raiders, they have more female fans than I've noticed around some other teams. It, w- it was always interesting to me when I would yeah. when I would show up, check into the hotel and the fan base, of course. I mean, everybody wears the, the Raiders logos and colors and that. But it was interesting how many women would come up and want to talk about the team. And, and I that was a strong positive for me with this fan base. And uh, I hope they enjoy traveling to Las Vegas, my man. Brent, all the best to you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Take care. Our thanks to Brent. Really good conversation with him. And I'll tell you, I could talk about football history with Brent for a lot longer than the half hour we just had him. So before I get to our next guest, let's just remind you of a few things coming, or a few things we have now on Peacock, which is the new streaming service of NBC. It's so interesting now to see that basically... For all of the daylight hours, you get great sports programming uh, on Peacock. But let's highlight a couple of things. The uh, Michael Holly and Mike Smith show, Brother from Another, 3 to 5 p.m. every day on Peacock. And from 5 to 6 every day, PFT p.m. Mike Florio with some of his best work. I know this week. If you uh, listen to PFTPM, you're going to see a really cool interview with a new star in the NFL, who, by the way, has a very big game on Monday, Kansas City at Baltimore. 
Clyde Edwards-Hilaire of the Kansas City Chiefs, the really good new running back for the Chiefs. You can listen to him with Mike Florio. Uh, and those interviews you can hear every day from 5 to 6 p.m. on PFTPM, right after Brother from Another from 3 to 5 p.m. Those are Eastern times. So let's go to Mike Ryan, a 26-year NFL athletic trainer now working for NBC and basically trying to divine like the rest of us, why are there so many injuries early on in the NFL? Happy to be joined by Mike Ryan, NBC sports medicine analyst, uh, sports medicine analyst. And Mike, uh, obviously, everybody wants to know what's going on with all these injuries. And at the risk of asking you a terribly open-ended question to start, is there any common bond in the spate of injuries, particularly the ACLs, uh, that we've seen in the first two weeks of this uh, very different NFL season? Well, I think the common bond here is the early high-intensity games that they're at, because obviously we didn't have any preseason games. But to be honest with you, Peter, I expect to see a lot more soft tissue injuries, the hamstring pulls, the, the high groin strains going into it, because the offseason was pretty much non-existent. So I think the fact that this is week two was a much more injury-prone game uh, across the board than what we saw in week one. Uh, I think the big factor here is, the, is there the high intensity things like they're doing the contact and things where you can mimic that early on uh, before the season starts, but you can't bring that kind of intensity um, to the lower extremity, especially if, uh, in games like you would in practice. So you worked in the NFL for 26 years, six years with the Giants and then 20 uh, with the Jaguars uh, as their head athletic trainer. And does this year remind you of any other year you've been in or that you were in the league, or do you really believe it is different? Well, I, I've had years, and every team has it, where you get this rush of injuries and you get a lot of big injuries. And in I think we've had as many as six ACL injuries in Jacksonville in one year. You know, that obviously is not the norm. So sometimes they come in, in bunches like this. And a lot of it comes down to, Peter, is when you start getting injuries, especially at one position, you're forcing players that may not have the experience or, or may not have the talent to suddenly fill into those positions and to handle that role. So th there's a lot of factors. I think when you, what we realize is when you start getting injuries like this, especially with a particular team or position, you can get a run on those very quickly. And, and that becomes a big concern. Um, do you buy uh, Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers saying that they think that the turf in the Meadowlands is faulty? I don't buy it, to be honest with you, Peter. I, I think you look at those injuries. You look at um, Jimmy Garoppolo's injury where he got uh, Quentin Williams landed on the back of his ankle, pinned his ankle, and there was kind of a rotational component there. Um, you look at Nick Bosa's injury. He was engaged with um, the tight end, and he was hopping back to his left side. His, if you watch it, his pelvis was rotating to the right, to the left, and his shoulders were being forcefully driven to the, the right side. That kind of torsion, especially when you see ACL injuries, that rotational component of the lower extremity, that's usually the X factor that uh, puts a lot of undue stress on and the that, And that, and that d does not imply that even if the turf were, as the 49ers said, sticky, that it would lead to an injury like that. 
what you tend to see with the footing being bad and something that may be a little bit more a factor when it comes to the the contact with the shoe. I was in the NFL foot and ankle committee for seven years, and we looked at that coefficient of friction and a lot of the science there. You tend to see that a little bit more, Peter, with the non-contact injuries. When you look at Jimmy Garoppolo, you look at Bose, you look at Solomon Thomas's, all those injuries, they were engaged with someone that was contact. So I think with that being said, I don't necessarily see it as a a foot issue and the turf being a big, big factor with those injuries. Yeah. Um, tell me what you think happens in a year when, let's say, the first six to seven months of the year, teams are not together. Uh, you've got to basically rely on your players, on your teams, to go out and work out on their own. I, I, the one story that I, I will not be able to forget is the story of, uh, you know, of, of a bunch of guys on the Chargers. And several of them went out to work out at local parks. And they were doing chin-ups on the kind of monkey bars that your kids would play at on the playground. Now, the reason that they had to do that is because the gyms, weren't open like Austin Eckler did this you know he's kind of a big star but you know he was still for much of the offseason on his first contract so he might be a star but he doesn't have a boatload of money to go out and and buy a gym or put a gym in his house whatever his his living situation is so in the offseason there seemed to be a real inconsistency to what players could do to stay in shape Absolutely. And that was a big factor with players coming in because you didn't know what kind of condition they were in, where they were training, who they were training with. So they really had to get up to speed very, very quickly. And, and I think that's why I thought personally there'd be a lot more soft tissue injuries. But the players had to be a lot more creative, I think, over the next month to really see how that kind of conditioning and the training they did, how it pays off. But everybody was coming from different areas, different philosophies. Yeah, they had some continuity when it came to doing workouts via Zoom and being in touch with their strength coaches. Um, but that obviously can only go so far. Interesting, Peter, the guys that were had the opportunity that were injured coming out of last year and had the opportunity as soon as this uh, pandemic struck, they were still allowed to continue to go into the facilities and train with the athletic trainers and physical therapists. Those are the ones that still had access to the, the weight rooms, to the strength coaches. And I think some of the success of some of the rehab of those guys by them being in there before the, the bomb hit, so to speak, uh, they have a little bit more of an advantage because they were set in those settings and they were allowed to continue to do so. I think that's a fascinating thing to think about that, that the guys who were who were coming off injuries from last year had theoretically a huge advantage over guys just working out this year. That's what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, tell me just a little bit about what, why in your mind – uh, or, or whether in your mind you thought that this ramp-up period in the in training camp this year was smart and what you thought coming into the year might have been the result of having no preseason games and really not having a lot of, of you know, full-go practice sessions. Well, I, I think the ramp-up was smart. I think they, um, I'm a big fan of Dr. Alan Sills, who's the chief medical officer for the NFL, and he and all the NFL athletic trainers and medical staffs really got together and, and really had a cohesive 
well-communicated plan going into it. And as you know, Peter, it was, it was changing on a weekly basis. So I think they would keep the players safe to begin with, learn from other leagues and do what they had to do from a pandemic point of view was smart. But then once they got together, the, the NFL, the medical staffs and the NFL uh, Players Association kind of agreed upon a plan of how they would ramp the players up and how they would get back into the activities. So, so I think putting that together allowed them to A, to stay a little bit safer to begin with and, and B, to kind of everybody be on the same page because the big factor here, as you know, is the coaches and, and the coaches are push it as hard as they can. But them buying in as well and holding back and staying on the plan to get players at least to the regular season as healthy as they could. And, and I think over time, we'll see how that really plays out. I think we see already the, the advantage of having multiple unlimited moves from the injured reserve and from pra- practice squad back to that active roster. Uh, that's really being a big advantage now. And I, I think that trend's going to continue. Am I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but am I reading you correctly in thinking, in you thinking that this might be, you're not sure, but it might be a fluke, all these injuries. It might be. You can get runs on these. Uh, sometimes it's just just luck or, or lack thereof that can happen. So, you know, if you're going to see these things, because a lot of these injuries, Peter, that we saw today, uh, this weekend were joint-related, were ligament-related, MCLs, ACLs. Uh, we saw a couple MCLs as well, uh, ruptured Achilles and uh, Indy. So I think with a lot of those, those can just happen. When when ligaments start tearing, it's like your shoelace. You, your shoelaces don't rip when you're walking down the road. When they're just tight enough and you taunt on them enough, and they could rupture. So sometimes those could happen. But if they're really predisposed to that, I thought we would have saw a lot more of those in, in week one, and we didn't. So we could see these. And sometimes I, I've had many coaches, uh, head coaches and general managers in older meetings where they're looking at you and say, why did this happen? Why did the player change direction in the ACL tear on a move he's done 30,000 times? And sometimes you really can't come up with an answer to that. So this, this could happen as crazy out of the blue as it can the next three weeks don't have any ACL. So yeah, I don't think you can really contribute this to one particular factor. Um, I think time will tell if that's the, that is the truth. I want to ask you just a little bit about COVID. And I realize that this is that nobody can be an expert in COVID-19, but I am jaw dropping surprised that in the first two weeks of the season, 2,460 players, an average of 76 per team, active players, practice squad, IR guys, 2,460 in the two weeks of being tested every day, except Sunday and Monday. In those two weeks, all 2,460 players, have we've had zero positive tests for COVID-19. I, that blows me away. What do you think? It's phenomenal. And I think we hope that trend continues. And I think it's what we're seeing now is, is people obviously have bought into it. The, the daily testing, I think that's a key component uh, to really help curtain this is, is to have the daily testing. I think that's really important. I think the thing in talking to people around the league that obviously they're very happy with how this is working out, but there's a big air of concern to make sure there's no complacency. Because in the facilities, they're very tough with each of these 32 teams. But once the players get out of that setting and once they're home and they're with the kids and now their kids are going back to school, there's a lot more touch points here that I think the, the, the players and staff have to really be very diligent to make sure they stay on course and they do the right things and, and, and stay with the preventative measures that they do. And, and I think they do that. We can see this continue. 
but right now, so far, so good. It was it was incredible. I I had the uh, I had an interesting experience in mid July. I got a tour of the Minnesota Vikings facility with Eric Sugarman, who's their head athletic trainer. Yes. And what was so interesting about that when I left that there, I said, Eric, you know, you could you could you know you can eat off the floor in this place <laughs> it's it's incredible what you've done it's perfect i mean but i said my feeling is the issue is not going to be what happens between 7:30 and 5 you know when the exactly. when the players are here and you can you can watch them the issue is what happens when mid season they say hey let's go out tonight and let's go do this and okay, maybe they have their masks on, but maybe they take their masks off for a while. And you know, it, it, we can all just imagine what what it's going to be like. But I do think the complacency part of it, with everybody being told all the time, "Oh, you're doing such a great job. This is fantastic." That is where the big test comes in. Exactly, I, I couldn't agree more. And and especially when there's some errors around, uh, do the masks really help? Do they really there? I'm a big, big fan. I think the masks really help, and uh, I think they have to because it, it, the thing we've learned about this virus is its its consistency is it's very inconsistent, and there's a lot of things that can factor. Two people can get exposed. One can have bigger symptoms. One has no symptoms. So I think they have to keep the guard up. They have to stay the course, um, especially with a lot, a lot of young players, and now the factor comes in, as we know, with the travel, and, and that brings a whole nother level of concern and more layers of security and, and protection and uh, safety nets, if you will. More it's interesting, you know, I'll t Mike, I'll tell you an interesting little story. The Rams um, had to travel to Philly and then they were going to Buffalo. They were just going to stay east this week. Now, the 49ers did. They're staying at the Greenbrier in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Uh, and and but one of the reasons the Rams didn't do it is that they thought that their players would have preferred two additional airplane rides, long airplane rides, you know, five and a half hours, whatever it is, rather than staying east and basically being, I don't want to say prisoners, but you literally can't go out to dinner. You can't go do anything. Now, the NFL did tell me they're going to let the players take walks and they can pick up food to go and all that. But they can't go out and do what any normal person would do, uh, you know, on an average day in the United States. So, so I think I think what Sean McVay and his guys thought is, hey, look, let's get them back. We'll land at ten o'clock on Sunday night in L.A. Uh, they'll have a couple days off, and then we'll have a normal week, and then fly back to Buffalo. So I think they just felt like. It was better. It sounds crazy, but I don't think it's crazy at all. You you don't want to be in captivity basically for for six days, and that's why they made that call. Exactly, and I think it's a smart move. And and players and coaches are creatures of habit. They want to study in their own room, and they want to be able to have their own uh, routines in their lockers and things like that. So if they're going to be somewhere else and have to do different meetings in different settings, and they can't even live a normal life, so to speak, and be in a um, a pseudo bubble, if you will. I think a lot of them would rather take the extra plane ride, be safer, and, and get back to somewhat of a normal life. I think that's smart. Mike, this is a this is probably beyond your bailiwick, but just <laughs> I, 
I just wonder, uh, Alan Sills told me in the summer, I visited him in Nashville at his home, and he told me in the summer that, you know, America should be rooting for us because we need to show that a big American institution can go on as normal and life can go on even in the middle of a pandemic. Do you sense that? Or do you sense that people are thinking, eh, you know, <clears throat> the NFL, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's this monolithic business. And just because they succeed, it doesn't mean that anybody else in America should succeed. No, I agree with the former, Peter. I'm, I'm an optimist at heart. And, and I think that people, they want to get back to some normalcy and they want to get back to the sports that they love. So I think they are rooting for that. Everybody's looking for a good story. And I think if they can see... NFL teams and the players and the systems and um, yeah, even if there aren't a lot of fans in the stands, if any at all, I think them getting back and, and having some unity and doing what they love, which is watching football. Um, I, I get a lot of feedback from people in a very optimistic way that they are rooting for the NFL to succeed in this whole mission. Mike Ryan, NBC Sports Medicine Analyst. I really appreciate you educating us on this. And I, I kind of, one of the reasons why I haven't really written or done a lot about this is that I've kind of felt like it's a little bit anecdotal yet. You know, let's see what happens. But one or two weekends with a lot of injuries, I don't think means we shouldn't necessarily draw monstrous conclusions to it. Just it's kind of my way of thinking. I agree. I, th- I think we stay the course and watch it. And hopefully this trend goes back to more what we saw in week one from injuries, so to speak, than we did in week two. Mike, all the best to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Peter. My thanks to Brent Musburger and Mike Ryan. Really insightful talk this week. We'll be back with another podcast next week. And I'm going to try to make it just about as topical as this week. I have no idea who's going to be on it. But you tune in, listen, and we're going to have a good time. Have a great week, everybody.